I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1999 from a massage table here Ooh. in 2021. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Nybart. I'm Phil Liscove. And with us today is Corinne Steichman. Uh, Past and former, future guest. Former guest, future guest. Yes. Uh, friend of the pod. Wonderful human. Wanted oh. to do this movie. Thank you for coming on, Corinne. How are you? I'm so I'm so happy. <laughs> Happy. Talking to people. It's nice. <laughs> <laughs> so as, as our listeners know, we do this over Zoom during the pandemic. We do. Uh, Corinne has got real close to the screen. Yeah. She's trying to make this as intimate as possible, um, <laughs> and which is appropriate. It's a very intimate movie, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it is. A lot, a lot of close-ups. Yeah. A lot of body un- parts. Uncomfortably intimate, yeah. Yes, I feel like right. – yeah. Yeah, we should probably talk about massages in general. <laughs> well, this movie starts with a massage, a very intimate. She starts to cry. It's, I mean, this movie's very, very earnest. I'd say it's, it's curse yes. and its blessing is its earnestness. Yes. Um, I, you know, I, I went on a journey with this movie with both of you because I texted you both about ten minutes into the film, and I was like, I don't know, guys, I kind of don't hate this movie. And then by the hour point, I was like, okay, I, I'm, I'm sort of done with this movie. But it starts from a nice place. It has the best of intentions. It's just, it's just, a, it's, it's, it's a bit of a snooze. It starts off like a Hallmark movie. And it's just, it's an overworked lady 
Just got to get to the country. <laughs> got to meet that guy who plays hockey and is blind and fall in love. And I was like, let's watch. Let's live here. Let's play hockey. But then yeah. that doesn't, that's only half an hour. Yeah. It, it's, I'll say that maybe one of the most damning things about this film is it's just, it's too fucking long. Like this, Corinne and I were texting a little bit about this. Like this is a movie that should have been 90 minutes, like on the nugget. Like it doesn't, it does not need to be two hours and 10 minutes. It's just, especially when like it gets quote unquote harrowing for him and he starts having to sort of try to reacclimate to the world around him after he gets his sight back. Um, it just it just takes too long. It takes too long in that period, and I'm, I'm, I I want to ask you guys this question too. Like, there's kind of a moment when he regresses to a childlike understanding of the world around him. Oh boy, we gotta that, talk about Val Kilmer as a child because that's a that's a thing in this movie. <laughs> it's a big thing. It's like 40 minutes of this movie. It feels like I would him, say like, it's two hours and eight minutes of this movie. Like, <laughs> like yeah. what's what's a lobster? I mean, you knew what a lobster was when you were blind, dude. Like, no, you didn't, a lobster didn't I don't change. Agree. I don't agree with you. I don't agree mm-hmm. with you. I don't agree with you. I, I strongly disagree with you. That he's a child or just that he doesn't know what lobster is? He, he is a child. He plays – look, there's so much wrong with this movie. But <laughs> if you had never seen a lobster before, <laughs> you would not know what a lobster is. Mm-hmm. And, you would, and I think you might think people eat this – uh, because it's revolting looking. That's not what the big issue is for me. I mean, every, I, every, everything about this okay. movie. And, all right, there are very few movies we've done that I would say uh, constitute a war crime, but this is a war crime. Oh, okay. Explain. A crime against, <laughs> maybe, a crime against, maybe a crime against humanity. I'm not sure. <laughs> it, cer- it, certainly, wow. it certainly violates the Geneva Con- Convention. Um, this... This movie is all right. So I, I want. Uh, there are two things I want to kind of say before to, to set the stage from what I'm thinking. One is I went into this movie uh, kind of wanting to like it. I think Phil had the same feeling. Corinne, have you seen this movie before? I saw this film in the theaters in 1999. <laughs> I'm guessing you did as well. And no, oh no, I the, the only thing I remember no, no, no. I from like it, I mean. the oh. only thing I remember from seeing it was it was long. <laughs> sure, that that was my takeaway as a fourteen year old. So, so it is long. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to like this because uh, it's it's of a genre and a tone yeah. that is that is so maligned by culture at large. But by pop culture and by high culture, this paperback romance thing, right? Um, but I truly kind of like that. I do I, too. I, do too. Yeah. I, I, I understand it's not like, you know, the highest of high art or the most dramatic of drama. But I, I have no problem with melodrama. I have no problem with, you know, Boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl. Like, I find those rhythms to be relaxing and comforting. And I, Corinne said something in the beginning that, you know, I think it's fine. You put it in a, in, a, in a nice setting. You have two people who meet each other, two lost souls who meet each other. It's always, it's almost always going to work for me. So that's, um, that's one kind of box I would put this in that, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a little, I, I'm, I am, a little preordained to give this movie every benefit of the doubt. 
We did have a conversation when I came on for Runaway Bride and Notting Hill about Kenny liking movies with nice people doing nice things. I love movies with nice I people. Do, I do too. That's nice what things. this movie could have Wait, been. Kenny just Kenny just left. Kenny just left. He just dropped the mic. Yeah, I'm like, out of here. Out. I have to. My my dog was. I don't know if you could hear hear the dog in the background, but she he was just freaking out to get in here. Yeah, because he wants to talk about it's like uh, at, at, at first like, sight. There are okay, a lot of dogs so, in the movie. So that that there are. So that is the first like, yes. kind of place I'd like yeah. to yeah, center yeah, yeah. the conversation in its in its genre and its subgenre. The other thing that I think is interesting about this movie is you guys listen to the Script Notes podcast sometimes. Thanks. Perfect answer. Um, have you ever heard them do? How would this be a movie? No. Where, where they uh, they they hear they they get pitched an article or there's a piece of news or there's something in the media or okay, whatever. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And would this make a good movie? I don't know if it's how would this be movie. It's would this make a good movie? Mm-hmm. If you hear the story of one of the first twenty people in the world to regain his sight, yeah, and then a year later, because this is based on a real guy named Cheryl, mm-hmm. Cheryl Jennings, who yep. this really happened mm-hmm. to. Yep. he regained his sight and then he lost it again a year later. Spoiler Um You would think this would make a good movie. It begs to be a movie. It does. Yeah. This does not make a good movie <clears throat> in any form. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know. I, I don't think the um, I don't think the natural arc is there. It's a really interesting story in a magazine or an or I believe it was published in the series of essays, but it does not make for a good movie and then a third box uh there is the there is the the part about it that i really want to talk about which is differently abled people yeah Mm, right well that's 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 yeah that conversation yeah i am not convinced i I, i'm convinced this is a horrible portrayal of blind people oh yeah but i am not I don't know how to, I don't know how to tackle this one to be honest because this is an interesting interesting conversation for our moment. It's it's a lot easier I think for people to say BIPOC people have not been represented behind the scenes on the writing staff and directing and directing but BIPOC people make up 40% of the population. We have clearly fucked up here. Right? That's obvious. Mm-hmm. And we and, and we can raise these voices. Blind people do not make up any large percentage of this population, right? And then on top of that, film is a visual medium. It's very hard to find someone who is both blind and capable of making a film. How do you tell a story about a blind person with sensitivity and grace and inclusion without having necessarily people who don't understand that experience involved in 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 essential ways so those are the three things yeah i mean i guess we should i mean we'll we'll talk about all all three of those boxes because i think that they're all completely valid um i mean i'll I'll say first and foremost that i i of of the three the only one that i potentially kind of just disagree with is the notion that this story isn't inherently 
uh, filmable or, or, or couldn't have been executed better. Uh, I think they could have done a better job. I think a better movie could have been made here. Um, and, and I, and I, I think that, you know, Oliver Sacks, who's this, this essay, this film is based on an essay that he wrote a bit on these real people that you mentioned, Kenny. Um, you know, Oliver Sacks is also the guy behind Awakenings. Uh, he, Robin Williams played Oliver Sacks in that film. Um, you know, Oliver Sacks had sort of a history of situations like this, if you will, people that had these sort of, you know, momentary, unusual, yeah. yeah, unusual momentary sort of, um, biological medical thing happened to them that changes their perspective and then puts them back into the perspective they had previously it happened a couple times to him, uh, as a doctor. So, so he's a bad doctor for your side. <laughs> no, or a very, very good doctor, but only briefly. Yeah. Yeah. That is the doctor yeah. in this film. Yeah. Yeah. What is that? Um, the reason that I bring that up and I think that awakenings is a good thing to point to is because awakenings is for all intents and purposes, the better version of this, right. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, people that were, were in these comatose states that were given this uh, medicine that allowed them to wake up, but only briefly, and then they, they went back to sleep. Well, that's um, a great idea for a movie. <laughs> well, yes, yes, that's a be- that is a better film. <laughs> but, I, but I also just think that part of the issues here, Kenny, and I think it touches on all three of the boxes that you're talking about, is the writing and is the direction, right? And is the performances, like the various things that make the film and how all of those things don't meet a standard in this film, right? Like, go ahead. No, I would just, I would agree that I think they actually put in a lot of the, the like foundation for a good movie. They just don't ever build. They just put it down. They're like, that works. Let's (laughs) just keep going. Like there's a cool, interesting story sort of in the background of whatever's going on that they just didn't. Sometimes. There's There's potential. There's an inherent problem with this story and also I think Awakenings uh, that the the story that the audience – the story that, the, that the, the filmmakers want to tell yeah. and the story that the audience is comfortable hearing yeah. is the story of the able-bodied person, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So in Awakenings, it's the story of Robin Williams and his experience with yeah. the Robert De Niro character. Yeah. That has its own inherent problem, which is that it reduces the person who is suffering to a magical person, Mm -hmm. to essentially a magical plot dilemma, Mm -hmm. right? Who only exists to help your protagonist grow as a person. So that's one way to do it that I would argue is kind of shitty, but I would also say just breaking it down to the, to the, to the, Essentials. It works as a movie, like Rain just, Man, like that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, well, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. It, it works yeah. as a movie, okay. but it reduces a character to a a plot device, a, right. a plot device, a magical yeah. superhuman. So it's yeah. hard, right? It's hard because Rain Man is like the best version of this, and Rain Man is a fantastic movie, but Rain Man also like suffers from this problem. Yeah. Now. The reverse is in, in Awakenings or Rain Man, really, but Awakenings, you can't tell the story from Robert De Niro's point of view. It's impossible, right? In this movie, you have to tell the story, at least yeah. partially, from Val Kilmer's point of view because he is, you know, completely of sound mind before, during, and after. Um, but what that does is it, it, it necessitates that someone actually tries to understand what that kind of person goes through. And I think that's 
fairly impossible for a sighted person. Um, I think that's fairly impossible. So I, I, I think that that's essentially what I feel like is a real problem. Now, don't get me like, like we will go on the Mira Servino character's journey, which sucks. And she yeah. sucks. <clears throat> and she does sucky, sucky things throughout this movie. And it, you know, it, I don't know. It's a mess. I mean, part uh, of the, part of the issue for me too, is that I don't think that Virgil, Val Kilmer's character, that his story outside of his site is a particularly interesting story or, or that they do a particularly good job sort of unpacking it. I mean, I think the stuff with the dad is clunky as shit. I mean, I think all that stuff doesn't really. So, so what you're left with Kenny, and and I think this is part of your point is that the whole thing is hanging on one idea. And that's the idea of this man who gets his sight back and everything else is just sort of phoned in. Yeah. You know, it's like, we've got this great thing. This guy, he, he was blind and then he wasn't blind and then he was blind again. Isn't that a story? And it's like, oh, well, I mean, yeah. Well, yeah. my it's funny because my biggest problem with this movie is the fact that it seems to be about this woman who's trying to fix a man who's not broken. That too. It's <laughs> yes. like, yes. it's either a reverse pretty woman at best or at worst, it's about a nitpicky, naggy woman who just wants to be like, oh, but I'm being helpful. You need to do all these things for me. Like, I, I that's my biggest issue. Well, and, and I'll piggyback on that mm. and say that, you know, part of it is, well, Kenny speaks to the ableness, right? Which mm-hmm. is that it's like, he, he, he was fine, right? Like he had figured when he was blind, yeah. when we meet him, he seems like a very content, very happy person. He's not broke. And then society says, you're broken. We need to fix you. But she says it. Nobody right. else is saying it. Everybody else is Also, I, I agree with everything you said. And that's like what I'm getting out, getting out with the Mira Servina character. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I was hoping, and it's a very big ask of a movie in 1999, <laughs> but what I was hoping was when she had the conversation with the sister, mm-hmm. the sister oh. said what you're saying. Yep. Because then I yes. get what this movie is at least trying to do. Yeah. But what right. the sister said was, we tried. Don't get me wrong. Like, there's nothing he wants yeah. more than to be cited. We tried. It's fucking hard. Not going to do it. Yeah. Um, that, that, the word, I mean, the word, that puts, that puts being cited mm-hmm. in a superior position to being blind. Right. Well, yeah. That says you are inherently broken when you are blind and any reasonable person would want that this is the this is the this is the the point Jesus, of view of this movie. Yeah, yeah I agree. Any reasonable person would want to be cited. Now I want to say another thing. Yeah. That's not crazy to me if you actually explore it. Right? If you present both sides of that, if Val Kilmer is the one saying on yeah. one hand, yep. you know, like I do want to see this the horizon, but on the other hand, like I am doing just fine right now. I think that I, I, I speak from a little bit of experience on this because on a show that I work on right now on Step Up, which you can see, we have a character who's a double amputee. And there is a this omnipresent question. On the show, he's in a wheelchair. In real life, he walks with prosthesis. So there is a constant conversation about whether or not we should we should tell the story 
yep. of this character getting prosthetics. Um, and these in these these conversations come up all the time. Now the difference between that, of course, is we can ask him, and we do. Yeah. Difference to that, there are people who can help us with help us with this journey. But what I think is happening, and what I'm nervous about, and why I think this movie is a somewhat noble failure in its own disgusting way, is these are very hard stories to tell. And my concern is people will not try to tell them anymore because they're hard stories to tell. You see what I'm saying? Well, I, you know, it's funny. As I totally know what you're saying. And, and, and as, as you were talking, I was thinking about, um, there was a storyline actually on ER that they uh, did back, I think it was in season three, if I'm not mistaken, where uh, Benton has a son who is deaf. And uh, he's, he's born deaf. And it grapples with exactly sort of what you're talking about, Kenny, which is, it also speaks to this film a little bit too, which is a father who doesn't know how to process the fact that his child uh, has a disability of some sort. And Benton sort of struggles with this and takes his son to see a specialist. And she says to him, this is part of his identity. You know, this is, this is part of who he is. And you can't rob him of that. I mean, mm-hmm. to, to try to sort of do sort of implants and do all sorts of various things in an attempt to try to make him, quote unquote, normal or like everybody else. You know, there, there is a community of, of deaf people. There's a community of blind people. There's a community of of uh, uh, of amputees. Uh, and and they're embraced like this is, a, this, is a, this is actually a beautiful thing. And it's part of what makes this person special. Um and, and I think, unfortunately, as a society, we don't deal with that very well. Um, we, we want everyone to fit into a, a very specific box. And, you know, one of the things that I think this one could have done better was to unpack the father's character, unpack that stuff, see the, the you know, the, the sort of the what could have been done with that. But instead, they they throw it away with this crappy scene at the end and, and they shoehorn in this. You know, they needed a, a essentially a journey for Virgil to go on. So they kind of made the dad this journey, sort of, but not really. But all this is a long way of saying that, to your point, Kenny, if if we could see both sides of this argument, they don't even really do it with, with the Kelly McGillis character either, with his sister either. Like, it's just, for whatever reason, this movie is a very straight line when it just didn't need to be. And it, what's what interesting is <clears throat> that they do try and do this thing of like, in its own horrible backwards way, they're trying to say like he was better off blind. That's who he was. That's yeah, how we got yeah, yeah. it. That's what we're trying to get at. Yep. But the journey to get to that point is so muddled and so yep. poorly done without exploring those nuances. It's more just like it's more just like seeing is tough. And like, isn't it interesting that like you take it for granted? Like yep. that you can tell what where things are and how fast things are coming at you and what an apple is. Like that's Stuff you need to learn again if you had to see, isn't that cool? Yeah, and that's yeah. not really the journey, but they were trying to come to that thing of like he was better off on his own, but it's just, yeah, it just it's that, yeah, yeah I mean, I, I fully agree. There's a part of me, I was watching this film and I was thinking that you know, I, 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 I like medical stories, I like the idea of, of, of literal and metaphorical, I love the idea of this guy who all of a sudden has to relearn how his brain needs to relearn how to process one of his senses. And I think that that's an interesting thing, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. that's ultimately what some executive who decided they wanted to buy this, this, you know, essay thought, right. Mm -hmm. Um, But then on top of that, you have a screenwriter who 
doesn't have any subtext, just has people say everything. There is nothing going on underneath the surface of this film. Um, you know, and, and that does a, a, an enormous disservice. But I think there's something fundamentally fascinating about someone having to essentially relearn how to see the world. Like, I think that's interesting. Yeah. But you, you can't, that's not the whole fucking thing. You can't that's hang a whole they, movie yeah, on that. Yeah, they put the like, whole movie into that realm. And it's like, that's you got to one... tell stories. Like, yeah. like yeah. Amy's story still needs to be interesting. It can't just be like, I'm an architect and I have an ex-husband. It's like, it's just, there needs to be more to it than that. I'm they're, they're, mad. I need to go to this country to get relaxed. <laughs> yeah, it's like a, it's it's hard to feel sorry for. There, there are there are two things I think we're talking about here. One is is this movie ill conceived? Yeah, which I think it is. Yeah. And Probably. two is yeah. is this movie incompetently executed? Which so I think it is. It's both of these things. <laughs> it is. It is. It is an ill conceived movie. It is the worst version of a movie yeah. that probably shouldn't have been made. You're saying yeah. it's so, bad on two levels, then, not I'm just saying one. it's bad on two levels. But what? <laughs> what I? What I'm? Yeah. So, so the, I guess that's kind of like where I differ from from you guys, which is like, yeah, these are all bad decisions. Yeah. But good decisions aren't so great either, right? Like the, the I'm trying to think of like. The documentary version of this, right? Because that would be something fascinating. Like, all right, so I'll put it this way. The bad execution destroys any chance of it being the movie you wanted it to be, Phil. The movie where you actually get into this guy's head and understand Mm -hmm. what it's like to, like, regain a sense out of nowhere. Um, That problem comes from, I think, Val Kilmer's performance, the -hmm. script. Uh, There's no uh, verisimilitude to this, which makes me doubt everything i'm seeing right so whether or not any of this is real i can't i can't discern that whatsoever because i don't believe that what they're telling me is the truth i believe what they're telling me is a fake version of this guy's life and that to me falls pretty heavily on val kilmer's performance for anxiety to be a baby it's very interesting to 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 watch a film that's based on a true story where they actually talk to the real guy who was blind and they still get it so wrong. Like that's a that's an amazing yeah. accomplishment. Well, it's an interesting thing, right? But because I because I have abs- I mean I have virtually no experience with this, uh, uh, and not zero. So my my brother in law sister is uh, blind, and so I'm around a blind person all the time. So I have some sense of what it actually you know yeah. feels yeah. like to interact with a blind person on a regular basis. And, you know, there are certain things that are that are different from interacting with, you know, a sighted person, of course. But um, I do know to some extent that Val Kilmer's performance uh, adds a mental um, element that just isn't there. Oh, right? I mean, his decision to smile throughout this entire right. movie. Yeah. And the first thing we see him do, one of the first things we see him do is get on a literal school bus for children. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's never explained. They're like... This guy needs to take the school bus. And there's a He's bunch like, of kids on there too. Then they're all like eight or nine yeah. years old. Well, what they and do they is never now, explain it. Because now you're getting into like you're you're yeah. making a very good point. Now you're getting into like this part that like really really destroys the movie to me, which is it's the pumpkin element of it, right? Yeah. Where where pumpkin. you start the Christina Ricci movie where she you know starts dating a mentally impaired person. Oh, yeah. Okay. And you start to wonder like. All right, now is this uncomfortable for me? Like, am, I, like, is this an uncomfortable? 
is there an uncomfortable difference between these two intellectually? Which there shouldn't be, but the way Val Kilmer plays and the way the movie presents this character, particularly what you're talking about with the child school bus and his childlike wonder at everything in the world and his omnipresent smile. Yep. Um, and when he's particularly when he, before he, you know, regains his sight, the way he has no, uh, no, oscillation he's just no. happy yeah um, it's it does yeah it's like kind of dicey territory but what i was saying is i actually don't know much about the way this would be who does like who knows who knows anything about the way this would be this has happened so few times in humanity so if you told me that this is exactly how it is i would believe you if you were a doctor but this movie gives me no confidence that it can present the truth to me. Right. Because I feel like... Well, this guy's not a real... Else. He doesn't well, come off like a real person. You're, you guys are, are tapping into two things that, that I think we, we should certainly unpack or talk about. The first is that this, this movie is sort of medically mushy. You know, we really only have, like, kind of two scenes with a doctor who, who seems, if I'm being completely honest mildly competent but not like he's like, like, doc, he's like dr nick riviera from the simpsons like, hi everybody <laughs> he definitely has that vibe like there's he he shows up and he seems very confident he's like i can fucking give you your eyesight back then he does this surgery uh it works but like the scene when and we'll talk about it but the scene when he gets his eyesight back for the first time is not handled particularly well by that doctor uh he doesn't really have any he points a fucking camera at him with like lights and shit so there's that and then later, when like he starts losing his sight, he's in this tiny little office, and he's just like, "But well, I don't know, man. I guess it's going away now. Yeah. I don't know what to tell you." And you're like, "Well, uh, you got to give me more than that." So you've got you've got the medical kind of unfortunate, not feeling particularly solid, and then like your Nathan Lane Goodwill Hunting esque sort of scenario oh, of like a doctor thing. pseudoscience sort of what have you. So there's that, which we'll definitely talk about. But then I want to also just talk about what you were saying in terms of the childlike component, because just recently I watched Forrest Gump again. Me too. Uh, with some friends. Oh, let's and talk then, about And that then last night I rewatched, I rewatched Elf, Elf for the first time in a long time as well. And I think it both of it. those are examples of sort of childlike wonder that have romantic entanglements that just make you go, are they being sort of like, is this, is this a, is this a balanced scenario? Like is the, the way that Jenny treats Forrest in Forrest Gump and the way that uh, uh, Will Ferrell and Zoe Deschanel have their relationship in Elf, which is a much sweeter, kinder, playful sort of thing, which is different, but still feels like there's a person in this equation that has perhaps a more mature perspective on things and then this childlike component which i just don't know how to feel about yeah it's almost like the director was like bell kilmer don't be bummed just be just be happy that you that you're like this and he was like okay but the other thing is like this movie takes away unlike forrest gump who has like agency and does stuff and has (laughs) a life virgil seems to have none this guy's like i'm not even gonna go home when i get my vision back i'm just gonna stay in the city with this chick i just shacked up with like it's just he, I feel like it's, it's just like, that's the, I don't know. He just doesn't really have a, a life or a story and to hang all this stuff yeah. on him when he's not doing anything. I did literally write down, is he a child? He takes the school bus. He's talking to his dog, like a friend. Is he a child? He says, that's my friend, Bruce. Sometimes we watch the game together. Is he a child? 
He acts like a 14-year-old. Like, no, not that's No, not even 14. He acts like those eight-year-olds that he's on the school bus with. And it's just like anything that happens after that is established is just completely incredible. Well, it's it's, – That's not – I mean, honestly, having an eight-year-old and having a three-year-old, that's a lot closer to three. (laughs) I think that you make a really good point, Corinne, about how they want him – it's a fine line and they unfortunately tip over it on many occasions, which is they want him to seem – at blissful, like blissful about the world around him, right? Which, which, sure, fine. I mean, I don't necessarily have a problem with a person who's just positive. Like being a positive person and being childlike are two very different things, and they vacillate between those two things in a way that is that does the film a disservice. Yeah, and like Forrest Gump is never. Tom Hanks is, I mean, God, we can't even compare them. It's like apples and fucking rocks or something. <laughs> but, apples and rocks. Apples like, and pictures of apples. Um, Tom Hanks is never <laughs> acting like, a, he's acting like this person, you know, and he's never just like gazing at sure. things. Like, he's just like, oh, I went to the White House again. Well, he's also meet the president again. He's also given pretty I, yeah. look, I, I don't think I don't think Forrest Gump's a great film but he's also oh. given a pretty, pretty oh. we can talk about Forrest Gump we, uh, he's also yeah. given a pretty pretty specific well yeah well written well informed well drawn character yeah. who would talk like that yeah. who yeah. would think like that there is nothing about being a blind person that also makes you a simple person and yeah. that is like yeah. that is kind of the cardinal sin of this movie that is like the yeah. That is the original sin of this movie. Mm. You take that and then the other thing, which is done probably more for efficiency than anything else, but it's a big fucking problem, is like Mira Servino meets him, yeah. sleeps with him, and then says it's time to change him. Immediately. Yep. It would be one thing if this was someone – I assume the real person was based on – I believe her name was Barbara Jennings? Yes, correct. Yeah. Um, I assume that that relationship lasted more than one night before I they decided, let's go. They on were, yeah, together. I think they were engaged yeah. or something. Like they were yeah. into that which relationship. Is, which is the movie, which like yeah. at least then they can have honest adult conversations about yeah. the implications of doing this and the way in which like she is trying to save him from something he doesn't necessarily need to be saved from or that he doesn't necessarily need someone to help him save. Well, be, be rescued yeah. From. Yeah. So it's, it's, so, so the, the mirror sort of, you know, component of it is yeah. like one of those things you do uh, when you're making a movie or a television show to, you know, to, to, to kind of yada, yada, yada through the boring bits. But it destroys – it destroys her character and it destroys any chance of, this, of these characters having any kind of uh, adult meaningful connection. Yeah. There's, there's, there's also, you know I, – I, I think it speaks volumes about the fact that we were just talking about Forrest Gump and Elf, both of which are, are I mean, essentially sort of fables, if you will. Like they're both, I mean, they don't exist necessarily in our reality. And the fact that this film unsuccessfully tries to balance the tone of, of grounded medical advancement and a whimsical protagonist who seems to exist on some other plane is just problematic. But um, let me read the, the synopsis for, for our listeners who might not have seen this film. In the midst of desperately needing a vacation, cynical Manhattanite Amy Benick, played by Mira Servino, meets blind massage therapist Virgil Adamson, played by Val Kilmer, fascinated by his independence and seduced by his positivity. <laughs> Benick no. falls hard as their relationship synopsis? deepens the two... 
It's not untrue. But, yeah. uh, well, this is Google. Uh, as as their relationship deepens, the two plan to leave the tiny resort town Adamson knows by touch for the hustle and bustle of New York City, where Bennick suggests he undergo a cutting-edge medical procedure that could repair his sight. This film was written by Steve Levitt, based on Oliver Sacks' To See or Not See, it was directed by Erwin Winkler. Uh, At First Sight opened on January 15th, 1999 in fifth place with $2.2 million behind Varsity Blues and a couple 1998 uh, Oscar players, uh, Civil Action, Thin Red Line, and Patch Adams. It would go on to make $22.2 million on a $60 million budget. $60 million. Insane. Uh, it has 32% of Rotten Tomatoes from critics, 46% from critics. Uh, Roger Ebert gave it two out of four stars. He said, the Oliver Sacks case study that inspired at first sight tells the story of a man who's grown accustomed to blindness and then is offered an operation that will restore sight. The moment when the bandages are removed from his uh, eyes, all but cries out to be filmed, but you have, but to have sight suddenly thrust upon you uh, can be a dismaying experience. The most striking moment in at first sight is when our hero is able to see for the first time since he was three. This isn't right, he says, frightened by the rush of images. There's something wrong. This can't be seeing. And then desperately give me something in my hand so that he can associate a familiar touch with an unfamiliar sight. If the movie had trusted the fascination of this scene, it might have gone somewhere interesting. Unfortunately, it's moments of fascination and it's good performances are mired in the morass of romance and melodrama that surrounds it. A blind man can see and still he's trapped in a formulaic studio plot. I mean, that that sounds about right. No, it's true. It's like, why did they make this a love story for marketing? I guess to stop it. Yeah. It's just it's not a lo- it's about this guy's it should be about this guy's journey. It's a big deal that he gets his eyesight back. He doesn't also need to fall in love with some chick. I well, totally it, agree. It's well, so then, much more interesting if they're together for yeah. a period of time and then they can have the frank conversations. It's a meditation um, you know, on marriage, you know, and change. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Had <laughs> this been about a honestly, relationship, it doesn't yeah, make this had sense. been about a man who had been married to this woman for however many years, and then all of a sudden regains his sight, and it's about what that does to their marriage. Immediately, we've already I'm, made a better movie. I'm in. He gets to see his wife for the first yeah. time. They've been yeah. married for ten years. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. You know what? It's a little bit yeah. like yeah, a movie that everyone hates, but I love. Oh mm. no, the net. I love that. Directed, so I, directed by Erwin Winkler. I know. Uh, it was yeah. follow up. I know. I'm going to bring that up later. Round two. Let's go. Uh, <laughs> a little bit like uh, uh, Indecent Proposal. The pitch you just pitched. Yes, 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 yes. yes. Is that a the one where like, Demi Moore lies on correct. a bed of money? Okay. Correct. Yes. It's the one where she's offered a million dollars. Or and Woody from Woody. Cheers is there? Okay. Yes. Woody from Cheers. Woody's better than, I mean, anyway. Woody Woody Harrelson. I love Cheers. The Oscar-nominated Woody Harrelson. Guys, guys, Woody Harrelson's name is Woody (laughs) and Cheers. I just got that. They used his real name. Oh, my God. This is amazing. Corinne just had a moment. Guys. Woody from Cheers. Cheers. Yeah, Woody from Cheers is in it too, guys. But So he's, Woody and Demi are offered a million dollars for Robert Everett to spend spend one night with her. Is that basically the gist of it? Yeah, yeah. Roll around on a bed filled with money. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Roll credit. They get a million dollars in cash. But it tears them apart, right? That's the Sleep with G.I. Jane. And then um, they, yes. Well, it tears them apart and then pulls them back together. Correct. It's it's the exact, it's the exact, uh, arc of like what i think you were talking yes. about 
Yeah. You know, something something is fundamentally like missing in their, their marriage. Mm-hmm. Money. They have no money. They're struggling. Um, they're offered a you know ladder to have some money. What's missing it. here? Money. Darling, <laughs> we need money. So wait, um, is Robert Redford I say in this equation? Is that Robert well, Robert Redford's the doctor who can offer the thing. <laughs> okay, okay. So Robert not literal I say. doctor who can offer the thing. <laughs> yeah. But but the thing is in that movie she does get like temporarily seduced. Like there's not a moment in this movie where Val Kilmer's like, This is great. Like there's, we made the right choice. There's kind of a small moment of that where they're skating. There is a small moment, but you're but it should be a bigger moment. It should he loses it at the end and it should be <laughs> tragic. Right? <laughs> Like yeah, it's like kind of a relief when he loses it. It you is know, a relief. I, I agree with you 100. percent Actually, the thing is, like, I thought the last half hour. Well, was I think what we're tapping in. Uh-huh. I was like, there was a moment where oh oh, I, I I didn't read about this before. I didn't read the article before, and I didn't really read Cheryl Jennings' uh uh real life story before, so I didn't know he lost it at the end. And when that happened, that kind of hit me as like, on one hand. Okay, that's so obvious. That's a great place to go with the story. And to like, that's so sad. Like, that is like genuinely sad to me that like yeah. he went through all this bullshit, walked through it. It's like Andy Dufresne going through his three miles of shit, and then having the wood in there waiting for him at the end. Yeah. You know, so that that was effective to me, uh, just as a human being. But they could have gotten him to the point where he was, you know, kind of kind of making his way through. But I think at, the last thing that happened was he found the cotton candy. And then, like, he really, like, just, like, truly lost it, like, kind of in a, in a, in a, in a harrowing way. But yeah. can I, I just I, – I, part of the thing – it taps into what you're saying, Kenny, which is that – and what you were saying as well, Corinne, which is he was happy at the yeah. beginning. He, he, had, he had built a life for himself that he was happy. He understood. Um, and then this woman comes into his life and says, but what if you could see? And then he's like, I mean – I guess. Okay. I mean, I'll try this. So he's never, he, he never seems to really want it. And then for him to get his eyesight back and for it to be so jarring and awful would also just be like, well, fuck this. Like I was fine before. Yeah. So it, it, as tragic as I agree with you, Kenny, it should be in order for the tragedy of it to hit harder, he needs to be a little happier with the experience of being able to see. And yet, the happiness component, I put that in quotation marks, is him searching for the horizon like a like a, a bit of a crazy person in the middle of the night, like running around the, the city and her not really understanding what's going like it's just it's it's just a jumbled mess of ideas. Yeah. And I feel uh, like what they were trying to do was like tie Mira Sorvino to her, his dad kind of and be like his dad left him because all of the procedures didn't work she's gonna leave me and like i was like well why aren't we that's why he like holds back on telling her that it's going away i think but it's like they don't really make that like that would have been if you're not gonna make him sad about losing the eyesight i kind of get that if you make him sad about her finding out because he thinks she's gonna leave him first of all good riddance to this chick she's the worst (laughs) second of all that would make more sense to me yeah by the way like that dad should have fallen off a crane. Yeah. Like, he shouldn't even have a job. Like, he is such... Was that? I don't understand why... I really genuinely do not understand why he left. I don't. <laughs> I also don't I genuinely don't understand why this, like, well-to-do man is on like a construction a site. Yeah. Just in the middle of the city randomly. What is, 
And he's Ken Howard, who like always plays decent guys. Like, what is happening here? Like, like... get the fuck out of here! Like, (laughs) I I mean, like, honestly, Anvil should fall on his head. Like, what a horrible thing to do. So, all right, I think I think this this conversation is as has helped me understand (laughs) what I think is the fundamental problem with this type of story because this at first sight posits that being blind is a problem that any human would want to fix right yeah a giant assumption but i would think i mean also i think it's like but that's not our point because he likes he's better off I don't know. I guess you're right. Yeah, okay, keep going. I think that's what I think that's what a con, I think that's at least yeah. the premise, and that's, then I think yeah. like, and I think maybe the movie can be read as like ultimately it, it is better to be you know whatever comfortable than I have no idea, but right. I think the premise is like anybody would want this this ailment fixed. Right. I think there's a current idea that we discussed and talking about you know Eric Lasalle's character and all that stuff and and what I've experienced, which is this is not a problem. This is part of a person's uh, person, part of a person's existence and their identity, and it should it, it should be essentially left alone. And the problem with both of these is these are views from the outside, from able-bodied people looking inwards. This is how we should deal with people who are differently abled. We should change them in 1999. We should step off in 2020. But what we should or, – or, or not do anything. But what we really need to do, I think, is just ask them, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what I think the problem with this movie is because I, I – the thing that keeps like kind of kind of getting at me is like it's not so simple as this is a problem for every person that needs to be fixed. And it's not so simple as this is not a problem for every person that should be left alone. It's different for every person. Right. It has to be different for every person. Right. And right. as someone who is sighted, I can't possibly understand it. Hmm. But the, the weird thing about it is like Mira Servino finds the article among Val Kilmer's like stuff, his like nostalgia book. And a lot of the stuff in his nostalgia book has Braille. So it's obviously for him. This article doesn't have Braille. This article is is highlighted. And I assume it's from his sister. Right. Why else yeah. would it be there? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So. It, what, what, what that says to me is like one of two things, but the more interesting reading is like she read this to him at some point and he kept it, right? He kept it in a safe place and it's on his mind. Mm-hmm. And then they could unpack the pros and the cons, the consequences and why he wants this and why he wouldn't. Yeah. And then I yeah. begin to like understand the stakes for this particular guy. Yeah, a scene with him and the sister, like, or when he's telling Mira Sorvino, like, my sister and I talked about this, and we decided, and she's like, well, did you guys decide that, or did she decide? He's like, well, she's been taking care of me, I have to listen to her, and she's like, if it's more about, because that's kind of a a weird relationship that he has with his sister, and she's the one who's like, think for yourself, what's your, you know, like, that's kind of our way in. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, not... Not to put too fine a point on it, but we're really talking about like screenwriting 101 here in terms of just the the, the, the idea of stakes. And and unfortunately, the movie puts all of its stakes, everything on the romance. Yeah. Will these two make it right? These two this this their love is is everything. So which I think we can all safely say is 
not a great idea. Like, don't you, if you're putting putting all your chips on that, you you better have two incredible actors that have just like unbelievable chemistry. And these two have fine chemistry, but like they don't have unbelievable chemistry. Maybe in a different movie, but I completely right. agree. The chemistry was, was a disaster. It's, yeah. So it's it's just it's it's everything, and you know, I. I it's kind of what I was grappling with as I was watching the film, just being like, what am I supposed to be invested in? Like, what am I supposed to care about? Mm-hmm. Like, what is Virgil's journey? You're, what is Amy's journey? You're hitting it. You're hitting it. This, this goes back to like my initial point, which is like it, everything about this movie says Virgil is the one who has the interesting journey. Yep. And the only reason Amy is given the preferential spot is because she's able to body. And that's yeah. it. That's, that's it. That's, that's it. That's it. That's yeah. all she has, like, quote unquote, over him. Yep. But she, it is her POV. We start the movie with her. We end the movie with her. Like, it is. It's, it's, but, but again, like, she has no journey. Like, no. her journey, well, I guess she was divorced. She makes that sculpture, Kenny. <laughs> she oh she makes the sculpture. She finishes oh. her sculpture. That's her, yeah. literally, oh, that yeah, is yeah, her. Yeah. I mean, by the way, both of them. It's, it's fucking brutal. The scene, the very last scene of this movie, I'm jumping around, but the very last scene of the film is them sitting on a fucking park bench. And she says to him, I've rebuilt the sculpture and it's so beautiful. And then he says, I, I you know, I, tr- I saw the horizon. I know it's not possible to touch it, but like some bullshit like that. Like oh, it's, it's literally like they say their journeys out loud to each other in the final scene of this movie. Like it's crazy to me that, you know, not that this movie was made, because listen, it's 1999, it's a different time, um, but it feels like $60 million, that's $100 million or close to it in 2020 dollars on a movie that, by the way, looks like shit. Like, it doesn't look like $60 million. My guess is that Val probably had a $10 million something around there in terms of his Maybe quote. Vera Sorvino, too. Didn't she win an Oscar? And- she did, but she's not getting 10 it's But still, like... But like it's just it's crazy to me that nobody at MGM was like, you know, maybe we shouldn't hit it totally on the head. Like maybe the end shouldn't be a literal distillation of their journeys. But, you know, that's where we're at. I, I want to give just a little <laughs> bit more context in terms of like how we got here in terms of Val Kilmer's career, because we haven't had a Val Kilmer movie uh, thus far in the run. And I do think he has a fascinating if odd career um you know he his he obviously comes onto the scene in uh, top secret which i saw for the first time uh, a couple weeks ago very funny movie top gun willow i mean these are then the doors really kind of puts him on the map a great performance Oh god! Uh, Tombstone, he's very good in. Then he gets Batman in '95. I oh, I watched The Doors during the pandemic for the first time. Let's talk about that night where I just left, sat in my room, and read a book. So I was like, I can't. I got walked out. Walked out of your own living room. Out of my own living room and into the bedroom and said, mm-hmm. "Not for me, friend." That's my I've boyfriend. done that. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, <laughs> So in 1995, he does Batman and Heat, which is a fucking great year. Obviously, it's sort of it's it's kind of the peak uh, of the mountain for him. Uh, he he notoriously was very difficult on Batman. He's not asked to come back. He does. He's Island a very of weird guy. Like, he's a weird dude. He, he does Island of Doctor Moreau. He does The Saint, which was sort of his last attempt at trying to be a big kind of big movie star franchise player. That movie obviously was a one of my uh, least favorite movies. It's not a very good movie. 
And now we're at 99 and he does At First Sight. So there's a part of me that feels like he probably thought this was an Oscar play, is my guess. Is this the kind of movie that would win Oscars back in the day? Like this the, kind of- the best possible version of this, he maybe gets an Oscar nomination, right? Out- like I feel like in the okay. best possible version. And then he yeah. heard it was I, I coming think- out in January. He's like, well, that's the yeah. one. Well, that's true. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, and, and that's true. That's a very good point. I think that, uh, I think that you know, the, 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 it's kind of like the apt pupil yeah. to uh, – to awakening Shawshank or awakening Stand By Me, you know what yeah. I mean? Like it's the next yeah. thing from this guy yes. who kind of has a track record in this world. Like if you're going to do an afflicted story, this guy is the guy who you go to and you might get nominated for an Oscar. So yeah. I, I was the same thing with Maria Servino because yes, you know, there's that one part where where it's so awful where she's like, <laughs> uh, he's like, take off your clothes essentially, Ugh. and and she's like, well, if you're going to see me, you should see all of me. Yeah. And I she she kind of disrobes and I'm thinking, oh Mira, for this movie, like like you're you're putting we yourself. We don't see in the movie. goods though. We don't see we the don't goods. See the, well we see it behind a, a, a well placed uh curtain curtain screen. Uh yeah. screen, screen. Right. Yeah. which of course everybody has in their apartment yeah. where they live alone. She was she was separating like the living space from the sleeping space. I <laughs> I, I, I can fault her for a lot. I can't fault her on her decor in that apartment. That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. Um, but yes, I do think it was a bit of an Oscar play. But this, it leads me to another kind of doubt question, which is there's been this like all right, there's been this thing that happened with Keanu over the last ten years, yeah. where people started to say, you know what? Actually, he's really good, right? Yep. And that's Keanu. Same thing happened like with Nicolas Cage where people were like, you know what? He's actually really good. Uh, this kind of happened with Al Kilmer at some point. Kiss, kiss, bang, bang. Like, right? Around kiss, kiss, bang, yeah. bang. Yep, 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 right? yep, yep. Where people were like, actually, he's, he's really good. And then it's the same thing with like Keanu and Nicolas Cage. You start looking back at those performances where you're like, ah. And you're like, wait a second. This shit was good. And this happened with Val with like, uh, I mean, when you were going through Heat, it's a great example, right? He's amazing Heat, in Heat. Yeah. For 20 years, Heat was Pacino, De Niro, Pacino, De Niro. And then people started to like rediscover, like, wait a sec. Yeah. Val Kilmer's amazing. Yeah. So like the question I have is like, is Val Kilmer a great actor? Or even a good actor or a bad actor? I, 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 think, I think Val Kilmer is legitimately a great actor. I think he's a, he's a prickly person. And I think he probably, you know, was drinking his, his own Kool-Aid a little bit in the, you know, in the mid nineties. And I think that, um, which he's by the way, like, guy. He's, he's like, very, he's crazy good looking. No guys. Opinion. No, no, no. Well, no. well, that's my opinion. He's, ex- I, he's I, extreme. I my own opinion. That's fair. But he's very blonde. <laughs> I'll say that. He is very blonde. But, but I do blonde. think that I, I just, it, it should be that's said blonde. seeing top secret for the first time a few weeks ago, I was kind of like, if I saw that guy in whatever year it was, 84 or something like that, like it's a breath of fresh air. Like he is, he is all in. This is a Juilliard actor who goes all in on a, on a, a broad, silly comedy and he's, yeah, he's fucking brilliant. great in it. He is. He's like brilliant. it's a movie star performance that you're just like, well, this guy's obviously going to be huge. Um, and, and, and truthfully, it's just sort of, it's wobbly and, and weird, but like he gets his cracks and I, I, I hear you, Corinne, that the doors might not be the best movie in the world. And it's, I don't think it is, but 
he's fucking great as Jim Morrison. In the I, movie. I mean, it is a, it's an amazing performance. I think that the thing about Val Kilmer is that he is a comedic actor or at least in an element, the things that he does best are the things of levity. And when he tries to do this like soapy dramatic stuff, like this movie is just like, no, I mean, the best part about Kiss Kiss Bang Bang so, is that he's yeah. so funny. And then the doors, he's also playing kind of like a, like, oh, like a whatever. I don't know. I didn't finish it. I totally character. agree with you. He is playing a character in the doors. He's playing, mm -hmm. a, he, he play, he's not playing Jim Morrison as Jim Morrison. He's playing Jim Morrison as pop culture's understanding of Jim, Jim Morrison. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a and joke. it's fun. It does the same thing in True Romance, right? Yeah. Like yeah. he is, he is Elvis in True Romance yeah. and you never see him in, in focus. Yeah. But he is, he's playing, you know, pop culture's like kind of larger understanding of this guy. Mm -hmm. He was also, you know, honestly, he's the best part of Entourage season one when he plays the Sherpa. I didn't even know it was him. I forgot he was in Entourage. That's right. He was so funny he's and a funny weird. Guy. He's a, he is a fun guy. He's a weirdo, and I mean that in the best possible way. I think that I think you're totally right about Val Kilmer, which I don't even know why he went here. Yeah, um, or like yeah. there's like some moments of funniness. I'm like, this movie becomes so much better if you're making jokes, and Val Kilmer can do that stuff. I, I really think a lot of it comes back to you know, Kenny and I. Kenny, we've talked a lot about like chasing Oscars and whether people should or shouldn't do it, and I, I think that this felt do like. It. Don't don't do it. But I but I also think that, you know, you look at that trajectory of that career. Right. And it's like, you know, he sees how he might have fucked up with Batman. He tries to do it with the Saint. It's like he sees it's getting away from him. And then this role of this script lands on his desk. I get it. like I get why he does it. He shouldn't have done it. And understandably, like Erwin Winkler is the wrong person to direct this. I think that in. In, in, a, in a director's hands that was, I don't want to say more competent, although that is probably the right word, but a director that's just sort right of, that, a director that at least understands the material a little bit better. Um, this movie might have been a little bit of an Oscar player. Like this to me, actually, Kenny feels like, Kenny and I were texting about uh, uh, the podcast, It Has Oscar Buzz. And there's a part of me that's like, I'm sure this movie didn't. But like, there's a version of this where this is a movie that ends up on that podcast. You know what I mean? Where it's like people talked for a little bit about maybe a Val Kilmer. I mean, he's really good as the blind guy or whatever it is. And, and I mean, that being Hollywood, whatever, but like looking at Erwin Winkler's uh, directing career for a quick second here, you know, you, you, you before you get into Erwin Winkler. Yeah, yeah. Of course he thought this was an Oscar play. Yeah. 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 A, a drama about a, a drama where a sighted, a real life sighted person plays a, an afflicted person. Yep. Of course you think that, like, you if you knock this out of the park, you get an Oscar for it. It's like, it's happened so many times. Like, yeah. yep. Jamie Foxx and that, for this, that exact, like, Tom that Hanks. exact role. Tom yeah. Hanks and yep. Daniel Day-Lewis. And it goes on and on and on. Like, that. this is this is classic kind of Oscar stuff. This is the what was lampooned in, um in uh, what was the Ben Stiller movie? In Tropic Thunder. Tropic Thunder, yeah. So yeah. this is it. That's, of course he thought he could maybe win an Oscar, but I'm so happy he really only seemed to try it once. Did Can he? I also just say, too, just sorry, very quickly, Corinne, I okay. think that part of that Oscar thing too, Kenny, is say what you will about Erwin Winkler as a director, and I, I don't think that he's a particularly great director. As a producer, Rocky, Raging Bull, The Right Stuff, Goodfellas, this guy has fucking Oscars all around him. So my yeah. guess is that he's like, Buddy, I'm going to get you that Oscar nomination. Was he nominated for The Doors? No. He, he might have been. No, he, he wasn't. wasn't? No. The, the, yeah, weirdly, The Doors. Did I, not weird. Agreed. <laughs> not weird. 
on board. <laughs> Not weird. Agreed from current segment. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. It, it, this is one of those things. And, and we've talked about this a lot on, on this podcast, but like it's the on paper versus what the film turns out to be. Right. I mean, it's easy for us to, to Monday morning quarterback all of this, but you know, on paper, Oliver Sacks, Erwin Winkler playing a, a character that, that, that struggles with a, you know, with a, a you know, uh, a disability of sorts. Uh, I, I think that all of these things, I get why he did it. It's just, it's so much more likely to play out like this than it's going to play out like the Oscar movie. I mean, you know what I mean, I will say I went to go see it. So I was in when I saw that ad, I was like, yeah, this is, this is what I like. I'm in. God, he's been in some shitty fucking movies. Val? He's been lost. He, he, he ain't been lost in secret. Yeah, yeah, he really has been. For 15 years. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You really I, I agree. He needs I, to do a comedy. Call his agent. Let's talk to him. Yeah, no, it's, talk to well, his agent. It's so, it's well, so the, funny. I mean, kiss, 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 bang, bang. Yeah, sorry, go ahead, Kim. Sorry. No, it's just so funny that he started with Top Secret. Like, I, I think people who can do spoof, like the way that a Val Kilmer did it, uh, often proved to be incredible actors. Like, one of my favorite performances uh, is Chris Evans in Not Another Teen Movie. And it was before he did anything, and he sells it so hard. Be like, he acts that movie like he is not in, not even in Varsity Blues, not even in something that's winking at itself at all. He acts like he's in Friday Night Lights. He is so tremendous. Anna Faris in in the Scary Movie franchise is shockingly good, mm-hmm. better than fucking Nev Campbell and Scream, who I love and I'm crazy about those movies. Regina Hall is so good in those movies. Like if you see someone kill it in a spoof. They probably are really good actors. In real I, it's, it's funny as you're saying that. I was thinking about um, so, <laughs> and this might seem strange, but bear with me a second. Uh, I watched how to uh, how to lose a guy in ten days for the first time uh, yesterday, or a couple days ago. Um, finished it yesterday. Long story short, the reason I bring this up is you've got Matthew McConaughey and Kate Hudson, who I think are both fucking great. Like can be fucking great, and that movie is not, but. There's something about, to your point, Kenny, that idea of the instincts of an actor where they can fucking go there, right? Now, the director needs to know where the dials are in order to sort of modulate to a certain degree understanding. And I I don't think that the director of uh, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days does that. I think, in fact, it's all over the fucking place. But to your point, an actor that, that 
a fearlessness to go there is so intrinsic and so important to the DNA of, of a great career. Um, but then, you know, they can get in their own way, which as, as we see in Val Kilmer's instance, uh, you know, becomes a problem. Yeah. It's so funny. Guy, uh, no, you mentioned Keanu Reeves and I, I kept thinking about the lake house when I was watching this movie. Sure. Because it's similar. It's, because very, it's, similar. it's the same melodrama, schmaltzy love stuff, but Keanu Reeves in that movie, he, he, he's like what you're saying. He gives it like, he's like, I'm going to be this like brooding emotional person. And it, for me, that movie is wonderfully bad. Like it's it's bad, but it's great because they're both really invested in giving a great performance. And you know Keanu why? Reeves knows that it's not going to be a great film, but he's just like, you know what? Let's do it. You know why it's wonderfully bad? For the same reason, how How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days is wonderfully bad because those two people, Keanu yeah. Reeves and Sandra Bullock, could have chemistry like sitting in a fucking dental office. Like they just, there is just something about them mm. that it doesn't matter what they're doing. They're not even in I'll, the same so, scene for the most of the movie. Yeah, yeah. There's just something about them that you just like these two people. It's, yeah. it's a Meg, it's a Meg Ryan, Tom Hanks yeah. thing. Yep. It's a Rachel Ross thing. It's like they're lobsters. You want to see <gasps> these two people together. Great reference. Now, okay. <laughs> and then, and, and I would say the same thing. Like I, I texted with Phil, like all of my issues with how I met your mother while he was not, I mean, how was a guy in 10 days was like, watching it, yeah. which I think is like a diabolical movie. Yeah, it's a, it was amazing. <laughs> And yet, like I said, like if it, there there are people who think it's actually good, which drives me nuts. But if people thought it was wonderfully bad, I'd be on board because, like, as horrible as that movie is, when it's raining and they go inside and this is a house in Staten Island and they start making out, it's like these two people just have something when they're together yeah. that you, that you love and you want. It's to, I was going to say it's the second best chemistry in a bad movie I've ever seen. The best chemistry in a bad movie I've ever seen that like I was so mesmerized by was in the adjustment bureau with Matt Damon and Emily Blunt. With who? Like Matt Damon and Emily Blunt. There was just something about those two where I'm just like, I don't care how stupid this fucking movie is. And it's the stupidest. It's about special hats that let you go through special walls. Okay. I want to watch that. But the two of them, they are so tragically like meant to be together in that movie that I, I couldn't believe it. But actually, the thing about them that I actually really like is like they're actually only perfect together in a bad movie. I think if it was a yes, good movie, yes, right? Yeah, you know, if it was a good movie, I don't know if I would buy it. But like, does Matt Damon have romantic chemistry with anybody? Yeah, is that a Wait, thing? Let me think about this. Um, what's her name in Goodwill Hunting? Minnie Driver. I, I, I agree I with think that. Emily Blunt. Emily Blunt. I, I, would, I would say that Emily Blunt actually has had chemistry with people that I'm surprised she has chemistry with. Like, I think and she's, a, she's a, I mean, I'm not, not the first person to say this, but she's unbelievably underrated. Yeah. Well, that's people, but I mean, I just, I think about movies that she's been in a bunch of movies that aren't, that aren't good. Like, I don't, I don't think that Emily Blunt, uh, I mean, her career has been weird, but I look at I look at like uh, end of tomorrow. I look at uh, the, the what was it the the fifteen year engagement, the five year engagement, whatever it was with with Jason Siegel. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, she finds ways to find chemistry yes. with people that you just wouldn't expect. I mean, except for Mary Poppins, she doesn't really have chemistry with uh, the children. No, with uh, Lin Manuel Miranda. That's not a romance. That's not romance. She's like a. 
She's like the. It's original. not a romance. Yeah. Okay. It's not a romance. Not a romance. That's, a movie, that's a movie that doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what's interesting? You just said Matt Damon. Matt Damon yeah. for like a hunky hunk. I don't know. Is that what we say now? Hunks? He's a hunk. No, he doesn't he's really a hunky ha- hunk. He doesn't really have leading ladies. He's usually just like, like Ocean's Eleven. He's just kind of on his own. Like, I can't think of anyone. Uh, he hasn't done the we, rom-com thing. We bought a zoo. But he just has, oh yeah, his he wife died, but then he meets some girl. Scarlett Johansson. Does they have chemistry. Does that work? Okay. They're, Scarlett Johansson's kind of has that Emily Blunt thing where like, yeah. She could, I mean, she, she did it as a voice yeah. with Joaquin Phoenix, <laughs> who is unchemistryable. So she's she's got her and Emily, her and Emily Blunt maybe should do a rom com together. Yes. It might be a chemistry explosion. Yeah. yeah. Because, like, the two of them, they really can have chemistry with, like, mannequins, I think. Yep. Um, I want to just talk very quickly uh, just about uh, MGM's 1999 for a second, just to sort of, you've got. This is this is in sequence throughout the year. They start the year with At First Sight, then The Mod Squad, then Kenny's favorite film, The Thomas Crown Affair, Oof. then Stigmata, then World Is Not Enough, and they end '99 with Flawless. Um, That's the it's, worst. It's a it's not a good year. Uh, Can you run through that one more time? Sure. Slowly though. At First Sight. All right. The, the Mod Squad. The worst. Okay. The one with, uh, uh, yeah. Claire uh, Danes. Claire Danes and uh, and Giovanni Ribisi. Oh, it's not mm-hmm. the one where, uh, what's his name, wants to be a superhero with Janine Garofalo? Never mind. Mystery oh, Man. That's Mystery, Mystery Man. Man. Mystery Man. That's, also that's 99. Also 99, but, thought, not, yeah. but different film. Okay. The Thomas Crown Affair was a hit, and a lot of people with good taste like it. I left that theater when I saw um, it. You left the theater. God damn it. All right. Um, yeah. It's a terrible movie. One of the worst. Anyway, uh, Stigmata, which was kind of a sleeper hit for them in September. Uh-huh. Uh, World is Not Enough. Obviously, James Bond did well. And then Flawless was their Oscar play. <laughs> What's Flawless? I don't even know. Flawless is Robert De Niro and Philip Seymour Hoffman. And Philip Seymour Hoffman plays a drag queen who has to help him learn to speak again after a stroke. It's, it's un, it's, it's, <laughs> the movie is not... The movie is not aware that there is a difference between trans people and drag queens. Well, there's that. There's that too. It is. It is trying. It is. It's troubling. Directed by like directed by a famous a famous gay person, Joel Schumacher, who has clearly been around this world. But yeah, the the the, what I'm trying to like discern with with uh, MGM here is I know it's a very old fashioned view of movie making, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a Bond movie in there. There's a there's a couple of big. There's a reboot, two reboots, a couple of big reboots, big yeah. attempts at like you know this is this is how we make some money, and then a couple of like old fashioned ideas of how you win Oscars, right. right? But there's nothing cutting edge in here whatsoever. No, I mean, you asked earlier, Corinne, if MGM is still around, and and it's interesting. The answer to that question is yes, but also Mike DeLuca, but also has, no. <laughs> Well, no, no, but Mike DeLuca just recently took it over mm-hmm. and has now bought a whole bunch of really interesting prestige uh, films from auteurs. Like Paul, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's next film will be an MGM film. Oh, that's cool. Like they're trying to revamp MGM and and sort of turn it into a, a far more sort of, you know, uh, I don't want to say cutting edge because that's not really it. But I, but I think that they want to be more of an auteur place, which I think is interesting considering that, you know, you go way back and – MGM obviously back in the heyday was you know this is this is uh, Wizard of Oz and you know uh, Gone with the Wind and, and like 
classic, Everyone. classic yeah. Hollywood. And then they struggle through most of the 80s and 90s to really kind of figure out where they fit in all of this. Um, you know, the only thing they really hold on to is Bond, which they split with Sony so that they can continue to make money off of it. But it's really the only franchise they have. But it, it's just, it's, it's, to your point, Kenny, it's interesting it to look at this. Afloat. Sorry. It's interesting. No, it keeps them afloat. Like the Bond, it, it's interesting throughout yeah. the last 20 years as they have kind of successfully resurrected Bond twice now, um, or 25 years, yep. uh, that, that, that one franchise has been able to keep this movie studio above water to the point where I do think like there, there is some prestige, particularly if the, if, if the line is led by the Paul Thomas Anderson's of the world to making an MGM movie potentially, and to being the kind of person who brings MGM back. I think that, I think, it, I, I, I think there's no more iconic title card, yeah. right? Great Nothing is cooler than having that lion in the front. Mm-hmm. So I think, I don't know. I've, I've, I bet a lot of auteurs would love to have MGM and, and you know, the, that title card in front of their movie. It's got the prestige of being like one of those original big movie studios in Hollywood, right? Like that's the last one that's still around, right? Well, I mean, you well, know, I mean, Fox, I mean, you know, Fox has been around forever. Warner Brothers has been around forever. But like, like a, of like around. the 20s and that golden era. Yeah, I mean, I think that Paramount is probably the only other one that I really, I mean, so essentially you've got, you know, back in the heyday, you've got MGM, you've got Warner Brothers, you have Paramount, and then United and Artists. Fox. I mean, Fox. Yeah. Those are kind of your big ones. I mean, what's interesting about and it's everything that you're saying, Kenny, which is, you know, Sony keeps MGM afloat. It allows them to keep making stuff. You know, they try to reboot some of their older, they did a Ben-Hur reboot a few years ago, which did not do very well. But like, it's, it's just interesting how, how they try to stay relevant in an industry that is shifting, obviously very much towards franchises, very much towards, you know, IP and all that sort of stuff. And now it seems under under DeLuca to try to kind of pivot towards something more in the Annapurna, you know, A24 vibe, which I think is interesting. But I think I think Corinne's kind of point is mm-hmm. interesting to me in, in terms of the idea that it's like kind of the last of these golden era studios. Like it's not because these these movies have kept churning out movies. These studios have kept churning out movies and TV. Mm-hmm. But what does Paramount mean to you? Very little. What does Warner Brothers mean to you? Very little. What does Fox mean to you? Very little. What does MGM mean to you? Golden Age Hollywood. Judy Garland. Judy Garland. (laughs) So the fact that that MGM kind of went away for 20, 25 years has allowed it to take on this identity as we are the heart, the beating heart of golden era Hollywood. Now, I will also make another point. That means something today. That means something today in an era where the fucking Citizen Kane movie is being made by Netflix and movies are being made by Hulu and Amazon and Apple and have those cold logos, those cold corporate techno logos in front of those movies to put something in to put something out with MGM in front of it. The real lion. You, the real lion. Three real roars. Try star in the unicorn. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I was thinking like Columbia has been around forever too, but these, these yeah, they, mean not, they mean yeah. nothing to people. This, that, it's just that's a movie. But if you are sitting in a theater and the three lion wars come on and you have the smell of popcorn in your nose 
you are you are actually transported in a way that yeah. the only thing that transports me that I love. And then is when I watch it, when I watch it old, in. yeah, I know. Seriously, <laughs> when I watch when I watch a Universal movie from the nineties oh, and they yeah. have that logo mm-hmm. where it's like where you're. Take my money. I love it so much. Well, I feel like it's, uh, it might be before Home Alone, something that I just watched a thousand times and it's just it's like. Fox movie. Yeah. Okay. Well. Yeah. The Fox, the Fox fanfare is pretty great. It's pretty great. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. 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 <laughs> Fox fanfare is great. Uh, Warner Brothers, time, as time goes by, right? That's do, pretty do, nice too. And the, and the Paramount with the stars. The stars. I mean, when you're, I, when you're, when you're tracking the stars, I'm down with it. I love tracking the stars. Yeah. I watched also, the movie last night. Oh, really? I Major League, which we're doing on the oh. Patreon. The Patreon. Soon. Yeah. That's great. And you do kind. Of, they, they, they have the new, like, kind of CGI-ish one. It's beautiful. It's funny because in Toronto, the um, the like theme park is Paramount Canada's Wonderland. And they have the mountain. So for when I was growing up, I always really? thought that it yeah. was all those movies were the theme parks movies i'm like that's cool what, 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 what attractions are a paramount canada wonderland like what are the what are the paramount the big I, the, the big central thing is like the paramount mountain and a okay. dude comes out a few times a day jumps off it <laughs> and then there's like roller not, coasters we're not, talking, we're not talking suicide what, what no it's do? like a diver kind of thing <laughs> he dies from yeah. the top of the jumps mountain off it. <laughs> <laughs> Four men commit Yo, suicide every day. That is, that is some Shelbyville shit right there, guys. Um, Come on. Yeah. <laughs> so here's a question for you guys. Um, and this is some inside baseball, but whatever. What's your favorite lot? What's your favorite studio? Mm, Paramount. Yeah, Paramount. It's me, gotta be, right? Like it's gotta be. The fucking Paramount B. I kinda like Sony. I like Sony too. I also like Sony's Sony. Sony. Sony's got it's, fake grass. Sony, Sony feels like, and I love Sony, and I love, I love uh, Artifice. Sony feels like it was created for me to feel like I'm in Hollywood. Yeah, whereas yes. Paramount it's like just feels like it was. Yeah, which I love, and like much better than like some of the other ones in fucking Burbank. But there is just something about that Paramount lot and the fucking the. I mean the the fact that the the auxiliary parking lot is where Moses parted the Red Sea. <laughs> Hollywood is that? It's they the they the also best. have the um, the Truman Show wall from mm-hmm. the end of the movie when he hits his boat against the, the horizon. Thing, right? yeah. yep, is that yep, the yep. same thing? Yeah, same yep. thing. It's yeah, exactly. I've they taken... used it for all the big like water sets. Right. I take and, a picture uh, of it every time. I, I have like ten pictures of it because every time I go, I'm like, oh, I got to get this again. It's just, ever, it, but the actual. Hmm? Have you ever parked in it? No. I've never parked in it either. I always get so lost and confused when I have to park. I just do the first but thing I can find. I would I would argue that as much as I love the Paramount lot and I love the the actual physical gate, like the Windsor gate love it. is just the fucking best. Yeah. It's without a doubt the one I get lost at the most. Yeah. It's the one that I'm just like, wait, where is this? What's it's 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 the most confusing, but it is the nicest, and I'm fine being confused there. So uh, can we just uh, very briefly let's just talk about Nathan Lane in this movie? Oh, there's so I much think. to talk. We need a whole other hour to talk about <laughs> Nathan Lane in this movie. Okay, <laughs> far if you're gonna watch this movie, you watch it for Nathan Lane and then you turn it off. Well, I guess two incredible scenes, one incredible smash cut. Maybe- 
And, yeah, can you uh, talk about the smash cut, Corinne? What oh. incredible Kangol hat. Oh, yeah. Okay, so basically he plays this guy. He's like a professor of he's – a, he's a professor who teaches children. He's, I can tell you what his title is, if you bear with me sure. for a second here, because uh, he um, – what is his name? Okay, he is a physiotherapist, a visual physiotherapist. Okay, so basically he teaches blind children how to be blind, kind of. Or like, sort isn't of, he teaching yeah. their parents how to be parents? It's something about like, but in a Nathan Lane way, he's teaching them Braille and and things like that. He's a very nice person with a nice job. He calls himself a professor. Val Kilmer goes to him. Yeah, calls himself a professor. He says professor. I'm like, that's you cool. Know. You're Is not he a professor. Actually a professor? <laughs> Maybe he was in a day. Um, the professor. They go to see him, and Val Kilmer's like, "Thank you for seeing us. You said you could help," and he's like, "Oh, I can't help you." because <laughs> he's having all these troubles like like he sees something he doesn't know what it is he has to touch it so like i guess he's recommended to go there and they yep. sit down and they're all like okay so give us you know we think this is the point in the movie when like you have the montage of him like teaching him and like giving him tricks and stuff he's like no no can't help you you're yeah. on your own so he's that's, like he's like i'm not Anne bancroft no and we're like correct uh, he said well, he's wearing these uh, incredibly baggy chinos that are just like balloon yeah. parachute pants he's got these little eyeglasses that are cat with little sparkles on he the does. end he does just comes out of fucking nowhere you're like this guy's the best part he makes a bunch of jokes <laughs> That don't fit with the tone of this movie. And then yeah. you're like, okay, he's like, goodbye, can't help you. And you're like, I so, guess that's the end of Nathan Lane. But then he comes back. He comes back. He does He does come back. Because Val Kilmer comes back to him. I don't know why. I guess he's looking for guidance. And he's like, um, and then he sees him. And he's like, oh, hey, hey, Val Kilmer. You know, let's give those eyes a rest. I know where we can go that's easy on the eyes. Cut to a titty bar. And they're just like it? watching ladies dance. <laughs> You don't remember this? They're at this no, it's, a children's school for the blind, and then it's a cut to I a am, titty bar. So let's move. I, 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 you know, it's, you know I, I remember them drinking. I don't remember the, they the were alleged breasts. The alleged boobs. They were. I don't alleged. They're just like we're just that, a couple of guys looking at boobs. Like, I hope what, my wife is listening to this because I, I honestly have now like I, I don't even look. I don't even notice. It's over. <laughs> well, here's what's here's the thing about Nathan Lane's performance in this film is that I mean I I actually really love Nathan Lane. I think Nathan Lane's great. I I really have no problems with Nathan Lane in this movie though. He's he's either being sat on like he's he's being withheld from being Nathan Lane, right? Like he never really gets to go there. Which is why I, I, I sort of alluded when Corinne and I were texting. It feels a little bit like Robin Williams in, in um, Goodwill Hunting, in the sense that he only kind of tips into Robin Williams esque stuff a couple times, and even then, it's pretty muted. This is a very muted Nathan Lane, and I just don't know why you cast Nathan Lane in this role. And I feel like Nathan Lane didn't because he's only in those two scenes so he wasn't seeing all this stuff that's going on and all these terrible scenes and all this horrible acting and he's just like this is going to be a fun movie i'm just going to like keep up with the I pace of, like what and the director's like yeah do whatever you want and i bet yeah. when nathan lane watched this movie he's like what 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 film was what I movie in? am i in yeah, yeah. I, it does reek of nathan lane and erwin winkler were like one day we're gonna work together yes yes and yeah. you just put him in whatever role he had yeah. for him uh, the other thing is, though, like, I would take this over the guy you expect. Like, 
I think that's correct. What you're saying, more or less, right, Corinne? Like, yeah, I, like the guy you expect in this role is basically fucking. You know, they've been doing this since Judd Hirsch and Ordinary People. The yes. same yes. old straight Jew. You know, this old straight fatherly New Yorky Brooklyny Jew. Yeah, um, giving you kind of this tough love with like these like shitty jokes. And uh, Rod Williams did his kind of like you know. Gentile version of it, but it's the same character. Mm-hmm. Paul Giamatti has done it. We've had women versions of it, but like they're all this same, like old, like I've seen it all kind of bullshit. What I, I, I don't mind this version in, in terms of, you know, two scenes having to be a little different from the character I expect to see every fucking time yeah. someone walks into a therapist. He's office. a bright spot for sure. I just really want to know is like, I guess it's this '90s idea of like what men did together is they went to titty bars. Like, is that? <laughs> and honestly, I, I work with a lot of old school comedy writers who would probably say, "Yeah," but like, I just like just that harsh guy, Nathan Lane, who I, I looked it up. He, he, I think he came out a month after this movie came out. Yeah. So it's just like this weird, like it's we also already crazy have to a be terrible was... female character, and now this is what we're doing in our spare time. Yeah, <sighs> it's weird. It's it's a it's it's, it's funny. It was yeah, good. Um, I enjoyed it, but it's terrible. You know what's funny? Yeah. Uh, probably one of the, if not the worst offender of this idea you're talking about, Corinne, is Andrej. Where, like, literally sure. the boys, when we had nothing to do on, like, a Thursday. Strip club. Go, Let's go to strip club. I at least you buy know? it from them. Well, but that, it, that that's, a pro- <laughs> that's what I'm getting at. That's a problem. Yes. Right? The problem, is that we, the problem is that we presented that reality. For anybody, you know how many times in the five years I was there, the guys just got together and decided to go to a strip club. Zero times. Once. Okay. And if there if there's any group of guys you would expect to just like take off early from a day to work to go down to like fucking the Seventh Vale, you'd expect it to be the writers of Entourage, but that didn't happen. Because men don't do that. I think they really? did. I think they did in the 90s, though. No, I'm telling you, like, the only, <laughs> time, the only time I've ever done that as, like, not on a fucking fraternity rush event was my friends in college had a very sad tradition of doing it on Valentine's Day when we had no girlfriends. Yeah, and that is kind of the funny. end of it. I thought it was kind of cool, too, and it's over weird, right? But that I, is the end of it. That was the only time I've ever voluntarily done that. I will say that, that uh, just for, for what it's worth, when I was in uh, was in university in Toronto, I had a friend uh, who we would go to like bars or go to clubs. Not really clubs, but like you sort of. I guess clubbing. Not clubbing, but like dance, like dancing. You remember dancing. the you like, dancing. Dancing. Oh, that's another thing I want to talk about in this movie. Thing. Do you remember the Velvet oh. Underground, Corinne? Yes, of course. Do you remember oh, that that's in not, yeah, that's like an alternative cool music. Okay. Play. Anyway, yeah. That's my point. That's why, like, it's not a club, but it's a club, if you understand what I'm getting. Anyway, long story short, I would go out with this friend of mine, and it, and then inevitably, uh, he would get drunk, he would not hook up with anybody, and then he'd be like, can we just go to a strip club? And periodically, I would go with him. I'd say maybe twice I went with him. Um, and it's very depressing. Uh, it's a depressing yeah. experience, especially uh-huh. when you're with a buddy who's just like, I didn't get laid tonight, so I'm gonna just do this it's just sad this is all speaking to what you're talking about kenny which is that it it feels like from a a, a bygone time like a time oh, that's just not maybe the 80s i'm not saying like this is like not 
valid either. But going at the end of the night when you're hammered as a weird little as a weird little <laughs> punctuation mark sure. on your sad night is a lot different than going at like six thirty when you're just bored. In this movie, they go at four o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> You're just looking for some shit to do. Yeah, it's like so that bad. is some depraved shit. What, I'm sorry. What does this person who can just see for the first time ever? What should I show him as a mentor to him? I ought to take him to a strip club. Can I? Can I also ask a question? And I don't. I don't mean this to sound whatever. But are we supposed to believe that Nathan Lane is straight in this movie? I guess. Because I love Nathan Lane, but. It, That's not really his vibe. It would have been really funny if he would have been like, if they took him to the strip club and Val Kilmer's like, why would you take me here? And he's like, I don't know. I thought. <laughs> that actually would have been a better scene. That's a much better. better scene. And they're like, God, we both don't want to be here. And then they like give the woman a very big tip and say, Perfect. go back to school. And then they leave. You wrote a better scene. I mean, it's just. Not, yeah. Um, that, that brings me to another point. Please. Yeah. How. All right. So. How would this movie be different if someone had the balls to make it today? Oh. Be- because, like, I-, I fear that maybe, like, 10 years ago, when Johnny Knoxville, God love him, made The Ringer, which was just a questionable move, <laughs> they went in this almost postmodern take yep. on disability. But you don't do that anymore. I just wonder, like, because there were little bits in this movie that I hated deeply that I think would be the whole movie in 2020. The little bits were all of the cited jokes uh, Val Kilmer made throughout the movie. Oh, like when he's like, what's that? And she's like, that's a homeless person. So that wasn't a joke, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Man. <laughs> no, that's what I meant. <laughs> no, I mean like I mean like Oh when Corinne. That was great. Her, <laughs> what I meant I meant like um I meant like um when when he says to her, uh I didn't recognize you with your clothes on. Yeah. Uh, oh, that was cute. Instance, and then uh also there's also this part that same scene where she doesn't realize he's blind. Where like she talks to him for a long yeah. time, school and he's bus. like straight up walking with his hockey stick as a walking school stick, bus. <laughs> right outside the school bus. Meanwhile, like like twenty minutes later, he meets a ten year old. The second thing the ten year old says to him is like, "Are you blind?" He's like, "Yeah." yeah. It's like cool. Uh, like anybody would get this, but yes, those little things I think would be the whole joke. I think it would they would all be jokes where the blind guy is like, "Uh." Oh. You know, the, the joke he makes in the car was like, watch out, a car is coming. You think, yeah. you think that's what it would be if they made it today? I think that's Oof. what it would. Yeah. No, I, I actually don't think that's what it would be because I don't, I think at some point someone will put the brakes on it, but I think that's what it would have been. <laughs> actor, I think that would have been in, in 2017. I think they make think- it now with like a real blind person. They actually have somebody coordinate this, like talk to, like write it in a much better way with a much more nuanced approach. It's but then like, how does that person see? It's more like, the pro- I think I mean, of like the diving bell and the butterfly, kind of that perspective of something just completely mm. giving you a real perspective from kind of an eccentric means of filming or something like that. It's yeah. not a romance. It's just about this guy 
trying yeah. to like maybe move to New York. Maybe it's more of a peripheral relationship. It's really about his journey as this person. And we see it from his perspective. I got to tell you, like, I'm, I just don't know how you make this today. Like, I just, I don't know how, and, and, and that's a good thing. Like, I just, I don't, I don't know that this is a film that, that should be made. You, you could do the diving ball and the butterfly version. Yeah. No question about that. You can't do a $60 million version. I don't mean that though. Like I, a studio I, that's, film. Yeah. No. That's my question. That's like, that's, that's what I'm getting at. And I'm not, I, I'm not, it's not like yep. trying to drive you guys to the answer. Yeah. You can't do it. My question is like, I do think there's always like a spot for someone like Julian Schnabel to Schnabel to make a movie where he act. I, and I, you know, I read the Ivy on the butterfly uh, and like literally unfilmable. It's unbelievable. He figured out anything to do with that. Mm-hmm. But I think there's, yeah, there's always an example for someone to do or uh, an opportunity for someone to do a sensitive, smaller movie like that. But how do you get, a, how do you do this for, you know, a hundred million dollars in a way that's commercial. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. What's the last movie that was kind of like an exploration of, you know, like... like. A... I, I, I really have to say that, you know, I think that this industry has become far more, thankfully, far more sensitive to these type of stories that they need to be told properly to a certain degree. I just think that... Um, I think this would be a tough one. I, I, I you know, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Right. I think, I think this we is have what I'm getting away from it. Yeah. But this is what I'm getting at though. And I, and I, and I know that I'm hazarding a little close to like the people who decry woke culture. That's not what I'm doing. No, I but what I, but what I'm saying is I, I fear in this particular instance where, where in order to tell this story, you are going to necessarily need sighted people to help. Yeah. In, 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 in more than just a technical pro, pro, producerial way, yeah, people won't tell these stories. And a story like this does need to, to be able to fail. It's it's like you make this you make this you fuck this up in twenty twenty. Yeah, it's a career killer. Yep. Um, me, you know, but. I still think like people should try. Like for instance, Speechless, the show on H on ABC, yep. made a show about someone uh, differently abled, and it was very sensitive and very funny and very well done. And I think like everybody came out of that, you know, like smelling good that, and critically like, acclaimed too. Yeah, people Could liked it. And based yeah. on an existing show that was already successful, so. Yes, yeah, true. And they cast, you know, a person with actual disabilities in the role. And mm-hmm. I believe he had some uh, autonomy and agency when it comes to, you know, the way he was portrayed. But that could have been a disaster. Yeah. And I do think we have to allow people to make these big mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, I guess, I, I, and I, 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 I agree with that. I agree with that. I, I am very nervous about making that point because I do feel like that's, that, that is hedging very close to the, like, you know, what I say on Twitter is just, you know, a joke. And what I say in the comedy club doesn't matter. Like, it does. And there's a way to, to there's a way to get out that your intent is pure and you are not out here being a monster. It's tough. It's tough. But I, I to, to your point, Kenny, I think that it's it's important that people can't be, and I, I put this in quotation marks, but like people can't be afraid to tell these stories, right? Like we, we need to be able to tell the breadth of stories and, and have the confidence to be able to, to try to do it. And, and sure people might fail, but 
I just I think that it's I think it's important that these stories are told. Do you know what I mean? Like I think that Speed just is a great show, and I think it's great that that it existed and that it was able to to uh, to give that actor the role to portray, to give that role, you know, to be able to put that out into the, out into the world. Um, but I, I I do think that this would be I think this specific thing would be tough to do, it's tough to execute this. No, one, but I don't. Know. I'm just remembering that the CW had or could maybe continues to have a show called In the Dark. Yeah, and they do. I loved that pilot. It was just about a woman who she just happened to be blind and she's solving kind of the the mystery of her friend who's disappeared. And it's kind of like mm. this woman who's just kind of a mess and she's kind of messy. She's kind of like a flea bag type, and just kind of seeing her day to day. And they kind of. I felt like it really had a really nice balance of like in like like a real perspective from that person, but also mm-hmm. it's not the story isn't about that. It's about all the other things she could she's doing at the same time. It's great. The, 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 the lead the, the lead actress is blind. Oh, uh, interesting. Uh, actually, from this, I mean, I'm looking at it right That's now, right. and it was based on a real person um, and her story. Huh. So it's kind of yeah. That came out a couple of years ago, and I don't know. Is it still on? It is still on. So they, I'm pretty, like, I think what happened was they righted their ship, right? Like initially, I don't think they cast a blind person to play, uh, to play the role. Yeah, that's right. And I think they, they recast, um, they recast the role after there was some criticism. And I believe they, I, I, I believe that kind of worked out for them. Right. Um, I, I haven't seen the show, unfortunately, but um, I do. Yeah, I, I, I do think that 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 maybe this kind of undercuts my entire thesis. I don't know. I actually <laughs> haven't seen it. I've only I've only watched the pilot. Um, but it's a better um, version so of this movie. Should we rate this movie, Kenny? Yes, we should rate this movie. Okay, so uh, you know how the rating system goes, Corinne, but I'll remind you just in case you don't. Uh, zero to 99, zero is the lowest, 99 is the highest. 50 is the general recommend, not recommend. You are the only one of the three of us that saw this in 99, so you will also give it a rating in 99. Yeah. Um, I'll start. Didn't see this in 99. Before this podcast, I probably would have given it a 37. You know, I, I don't I don't think that this film is an abomination, um, I think it's got some, it's got some nice performances in it. It's got, you know, it's got a big heart. Um, you know, I got suckered into it in, in the beginning anyway, in terms of like the romance. To and be fair, as- though, when you told me, you said, I think it says a lot about the pandemic and my emotional state right now, but I'm really enjoying this film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's not Which rule think- that out. <laughs> no, no, no. We should, we shouldn't rule that out. And that's definitely, that's definitely like when it started, I was like, oh, you know what? I could go for like a Hallmark type sweet romance about, about, two, you know, two people just finding their ways to each other. Um, unfortunately it's too long and, and, and it lost its hooks in me, but at the beginning I thought it was quite sweet. I think it, you know, I, I think it's a nice movie, even if it's not a particularly good one. Um, after the podcast, I mean, I think I'm probably at the same. I think maybe I'm, maybe I might've gone up to 40 if I'm being generous, but I think I'm still probably in the mid thirties, but um, what about you, Corinne? So when I saw it, I probably was at like 15 and I was, I, I all I remember was thinking like that was long, wasn't what I wanted it to be. And something about cotton candy. Those are the things I took away <laughs> from it. 
the whole point of Val Kilmer remembers one thing from his like childhood, and it's a big puffy ball. And at the end of the movie, he finds out it was cotton candy. So yes, yeah, it's, it's not the best reveal. Yeah. Um. So going into it, I was like, you know what? I'm an adult. I've seen other movies. Maybe I'll like it. I, I think I went in, or after I watched it again, I was like, maybe I'm at like a 25 because I was like, there's. Ugh, there's just more here. There, I can at least understand more of what they were trying to do than I could at uh-huh. 14 when I was just like, this love sure. story sucks. Um, after our conversation, I'm back down to 15. <laughs> I just, it's just not, not worth it. It's just, it's, it's just yeah. not good. Yeah. Um, I need to correct myself. The main oh. actress in, in the dark is not blind. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I, this is all research I'm doing on the spot, but I don't think they have any regulars who are actually blind. Oh. Um, okay. I really don't know much about this. I wouldn't mind if we'll cut this whole section out. Um, but <laughs> I, mean, you t- I mean, all right, we can cut it. Um, okay. This film, which stinks, uh, I gave... I said this movie. All right, there's a lot. Like we, we also we didn't discuss the YMCA moment where he's at this party. We didn't even uh, discuss even yeah. whatever. Yeah. Like Sorry. I actually think it's very inspired that Erwin Winkler cast like the most hor- like like set the most horrifying scene in the movie to YMCA. That was very funny. Uh, where Val Kilmer freaks out and walks through a play class window. Um, I think this movie was truly truly terrible. Uh, I gave it a 20. Um, I said it was a joyless movie. Truly miserable. I think it's worse than that. I think I think it's worse. I think it. I think it's one of the worst movies we did. Uh, it doesn't anger me. It, we've done it. Excuse me. I, it, it doesn't anger me as much as some of the other bad movies we did. Um, I do think its heart is in the right place. I think 1999 was a particularly difficult time to deal with these type of subjects. Um, you know, I do think that I'm happy they took their shot. Take your shot. Let's learn from it. I'm going to go down to an 18. It's a stinky, stinky movie. But, um, you know, whatever. We do every movie. Uh, yeah. That's it. I'll also say stink, that, like. It, it's, a, it's a stink fest. It's a stink fest. And I forgot to mention that, like, I hate massages. Like, I hate them. So the idea. <laughs> Like a man silently touching me for an hour makes me incredibly uncomfortable. So the idea of falling, like that initial premise, I forgot to say, it was just completely. It's a it's a bad me. It's, un- it's also it's, yeah. It's, it's also it's bad. It's like the thing I you know, stay over a, a beer. About, we spoke a lot about uh, the way Mira Servino's characters, Mira Servino's character, crossed the line, but it is crossing the line for a massage therapist to hit on her, hit on his client in any way. That's yep. that's a creep move. It is a creep move, and she's so charmed by it. And it's just so like you're, and t- he's just he should not be doing that. Touching her, it's just it's just Sorry. awful. Yeah, it's not it's not good, guys. Um, so next week, uh, Kenny, you're going to be surprised by this, but uh, next week I'm well, I don't know about surprise, but uh, next week we're we're going to uh, do an episode that I did by myself, so without Kenny. Oh. I know, I know. Uh, Carrie Whitmer, uh, a uh, reporter for The Ringer and for Vulture, came on to talk about Frasier, uh, an episode of Frasier. Okay, uh, Frasier. 
the episode, in fact, where Woody from Cheer shows up. My favorite. Corinne, so there you go. Um, but uh, I wanted to bring that up because I want to hear your thoughts, both of you, on Frasier. Fans, not fans? The Were you a fan in 99? Biggest fan then, the biggest fan now. I've already wow. gone, I've gone through it once during quarantine. I'm on I'm on round two, you know? It's just... Are you serious? I swear to God. It is, you watch the entire run of Frasier? I only go to the end of season seven because it gets it gets real bad but okay. yeah huge huge fan i think 99 was like the, 99 is season six so like it's getting that's close like to, yeah. that no that's like the like the good the meat of that sh- series <laughs> some of those jokes are just so fucking funny i mean i don't know about how well it's aged and all that but just in terms of the comedy and the writing it's so fucking good. I watched an episode. I obviously watched the episode, the Woody episode, but I watched a bunch of episodes. And and Kenny, I'm curious as to your thoughts on this because I feel like Frasier did farce, like farce, like full on, like almost radio play farce better than anyone else. Like that show, when it came to a whole bunch, when like the episode I watched the other day was an episode where one of Daphne's exes shows up and everyone has to basically pretend as though they're different people. Yeah. Like Daphne is ma- is pretending to be married to Niles and Ross is pretending to be married to, to Frazier and uh, um, the father Martin is playing an astronaut. Like everyone's just playing roles and it's a style of comedy. No one does anymore. And I, I you know, obviously, you know, you, you, you started in comedy, you know, comedy television. And I guess my question to you is sort of. Who, me? Did, yeah, you, you. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, that's that style of, is that ever anything you wanted to do? Do you feel like you wish that there was more of that in TV now? I mean, wh- wh- how do you feel about that? Great question. <laughs> Love being the guest. Um, <laughs> my the, the simple answer to your question is yes, but yeah. that is high-level comedy. That is that is right. for actual, really strong comedy writers, okay. which I am not. Um, my, I, I, I absolutely love it when it's done on television, but um, I can't do it. My feeling on Frasier in general yeah. is it kind of hit for me, and it sounds like you didn't watch a lot of it either. Phil, growing up. I mean, I, I, a handful of it, but not a ton. So, Frasier was on Tuesdays when Seinfeld and Friends were on Thursdays. Mm-hmm. When And I was obviously a Seinfeld kid, uh, and also a Friends kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there was more overlap than people appreciated between those two camps. Yeah, I was, um, I was on board. I was all three. Right. <laughs> I think I was not erudite enough to appreciate Frasier. And I also was exactly like kind of that wrong age where like I would have probably had to watch it first run uh, in order to, to, to get it. And it never struck me as something that I had to go back to the way I went back to Cheers, which I think is brilliant and perfect. So my guess is if I watch Frasier now, I would think it was fantastic. But I have almost no history with friends when Frazier got put in the Seinfeld slot nine o'clock on Thursdays was dead for me because Frazier felt like someone else's show. And then on top of it, it won the, the Emmy every year, which felt like someone was playing a joke on me and the shows I love. So, um, 
you know, that's that's basically how I how I feel about this. So interesting. But uh, I do, from what I've seen, I do think, and I've seen probably, I mean, I've probably seen thirty episodes of the show. I'm familiar with the characters and I'm familiar with their rhythms. Um, from what I see, what I've seen, I do. It does seem like about the highest level of you know, um, situation comedy on a broadcast television you could possibly do. Yeah. And it's just yeah. such a clean, clear, like it's, it's just, it's a comedy of errors and it's about a man who thinks he is a snob and the father who is not a snob and the clash of those two cultures and that, and it's the brother versus the father. And it's, you can just mind that comedy for a season upon season. And it's still funny. It's still fresh. And because it's all grounded in the characters of who they are, you always laugh because you know it's not they're not just saying something funny, they're saying something funny and you know it's because of who they are as people versus well, it's, situation. It's funny you say that because the, the character thing is what hit me the most. And this ties into uh, Seinfeld and, and Friends as well, Kenny, in the sense that like great sitcoms, the specificity of these characters is so bulletproof. That idea that you're like, I know how this person will react to this situation. And it's inherently funny just because of how well you know the characters. Like that, that's that's something that I guess Chuck Lorre is still sort of doing, I guess. I don't know because I don't really watch much of his stuff. But it feels like that's the last vestige of that sitcom mm. thing. No? Okay. Kenny? No, have- no. I mean, you're talking about multicam. But um, that's comedy. That is right. television comedy, what you, ju- right. what you just what you just said. the it's the anticipation of that joke. It's the anticipation right. of the way this actor would act. And we talked a little bit about this with Hunter on the um, Ghostbusters 2 episode, but yeah. you have a certain certain expectation lined up when a character is put in a, a, a position that they're going to act yeah. a certain way. The reason that tagline – the reason that like – like um, not taglines. The reason that a like – Button? No, not button. No, not oh. button. Uh, like, like, what are the things that people say over and over again? I got a saying. I got a catchphrase. Catchphrase. Catchphrases work is because of that built-up anticipation of the release when they say the right thing at the right time. You know what they're going right. to say, and it feels good for the audience. Then the reason why sometimes undercutting the cut the catchphrase works is because oh, this is the kind of situation where this catchphrase wouldn't apply for this particular character, and that's interesting too, and also funny that we've learned this new wrinkle about that character. So I think like what you were talking about specifically. Probably applies to Big Bang. I mean, I've seen enough of Big Bang to know that like Jim Parsons' character is a pretty, you know, classic sitcom creation. Yeah. Um, but it also Zinga. Sure. Uh, it also applies. <laughs> That's to, his catchphrase. I'm not talking sure. about the catchphrases. I'm just saying catchphrases <laughs> is a very kind of like rudimentary way of of explaining uh-huh. this. But it also applies to like <laughs> high level shit. It applies to Atlanta. It applies to Dave. It applies to all this. You know, it applies to girls. It applies to Fleabag. It applies to everything that like that, that you know because because comedy is really just about rhythms, anticipation, structure, expectations, undercut expectations are following through in terms of like the joke telling um and then but i i think the joke telling you know is like tedious and hard so <laughs> you're not wrong you're not that's wrong. why he's a drama writer now <laughs> i just take out the hardest part and i'm not yeah. kidding like you I take know. out the hardest part and amp up the part that like i actually like writing um and then you don't have the ex- and if, if anything's funny it's like oh it's like it's like you found a little you know a little bonus a little little extra piece of candy at the bottom of your I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I do think uh, there's an irony no. in the fact that I'm, I'm writing a comedy now and I just, <laughs> but it's, I see what it's funny. Cause for me, I always think of the joke first and then I work my way back to the story of like, how do we make that joke feel real? 
Yeah. Yep. And make a story around it as opposed to just kind of randomly saying something that's really funny. Hard. That's so much easier well, for me. I just, yeah. Corinne, thank you so much for coming thank on. Thank you to talk so about much for having me. Um, we look forward to having you back uh, in the future. Whenever you want. One last thing, please rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, speaking of subscribing, check out our Patreon on all the best films of 1989, Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Fabulous Baker Boys, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, Field of Dreams, Major League, and many, many more. We are covering all the best films of 1989 with amazing guests like Joanna Robinson, Liz Hanna, Hunter Covington, Brian Cogman, David Iserson, and many, many more. All your favorite guests from our 1999 podcast are coming on to the 1989 Patreon. You can sign up for it at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. For only $5, you get access to all of these awesome episodes. And for a few bucks more, you get video of our 1999 episodes as well. Plus, there are other very cool tiers too, where you can even be a guest on our podcast. Please check out our Reddit as well at reddit.com backslash podcast like it's. We're also on Twitter at podcast like it's 1999. We're also on Instagram at podcast like it's 1999. Uh, thank you so much to Ernie and Will for producing our episodes. Sullivan for our social media. Yonk Tass for our amazing art and theme songs. And most of all, thank you all for listening. Podcast like it's 1999. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.